It was a big day yesterday, an incredible day. And last night, the Republican Party defied history. So hello and welcome to this special bonus edition of American History 2, where we're going to be reflecting on the recent American midterm elections. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Mark McClay. Hello, Mark. Yes. Hello, Malcolm. Uh, I come at you as a very, very tired individual at this point, as someone who stayed up till five o'clock in the morning on Tuesday to Wednesday, just so we could record this podcast. And as someone whose partner is a teacher and therefore the alarm stays at 6.30am so I have yet to catch up on said sleep so I do apologise if I get anything wrong. But also joining us and someone who also stayed up till 5 o'clock as far as I'm aware uh, to provide even more analysis on another election is our friend and colleague Dr Paddy Andelik. How are you Paddy? I'm very well thank you Mark. Hi- hello to you both. Good, great to be back. Yes, the last time you were on, I think, was our reflections on the 2016 presidential election, was it not? Yes, it and was. And we all remember it how that went. went. Yeah, we, I was, uh, I was I'm considerably more chipper today, I should say, than, uh, than I was uh, in November 2016. So we're now a couple of days on from the midterms and all the results that came out of them. Uh, so our first question to, to both of you, really. There was an expectation prior to these elections that there could be something of a, a blue wave for the Democrats, where there'd be a rising swell of support for them at the for the House, for the Senate, and in gubernatorial elections that would change the landscape of American politics during this Trump era. So, was it a blue wave? What do we make of the 2018 results in brief? Well, I think it was. I mean, certainly if you're measuring it by the popular vote and the share of uh, House seats the Democrats have picked up. I mean, at the moment we have around 30 plus net gains in the uh, in the House. It's looking to be likely that that figure will settle in the high 30s, maybe around 36, 37, which would mean that uh, in the House elections, at least Democrats have made their biggest gains since 1974. Um, the Senate is a little more mixed, but we all know how uh, bad the Senate map was for Democrats in this cycle. Um, but I, I think most significantly, if you look at the, the popular vote in the House elections, which in some ways is as close as you get in midterm elections to uh, a kind of poll of the American people, um, then you can see a very decisive swing against the Republicans and in favour of the Democratic Party. Um Unusually, given uh, that the other kind of indicators, the economy, uh, you know, the, the condition of the United States more broadly, uh, would suggest that the president and the Republican Party shouldn't be this unpopular. Yeah, I mean, to pick up on that, I think it's it's been interesting to see how this the sort of narrative of of this election has evolved. You know, you go into election <laughs> night, and I think there was, especially among Democrats, these big expectations of. Well, we might pick up somewhere in the 30s, but who knows? We could get somewhere upwards of 40s, 50s, you know, if we have a really good night and you'd get this real backlash that many on, on, on the left were hoping to against Trump. And I, I think almost the way election night unfolded has blunted the sort of wave narrative a little bit because all the early races sort of went Republican ways and it took a long time for, for Democrats to actually score 
a big a big win. You would have had to stay up quite late, even in America, for to to start to see those trickle in. And in Florida, became such this prominent narrative when arguably Republicans, although as we we're we're, we're sitting here, there's there looks like it's definitely going to a recount in both the Senate and the governor races there. Florida started to dominate the narrative um, because, well, as with every single election in American history, Florida gonna Florida. Um, <laughs> and so that has maybe blunted a little bit. I think is now we now see California still trickling in at this point, and as Paddy said, it getting up to the high 30s. You can't really say, at least in the House, it's anything but a wave. And I think if you had offered Democrats that they would only lose two to three seats um, this time two years ago, they would have absolutely bit your hand off looking at that, looking at the map. So, not 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 the tsunami that people were talking about, but definitely a wave. So we'll come back to some of these points uh, later on. We're talking uh, in, ter- in deep terms about the the results of the midterm, specifically the significance of these kind of victory in the House versus losses in the Senate and gub- gubernatorial elections and all that kind of thing. But if we can turn for a moment to the the presidency, do you think that? The Trump presidency up to this point has gone as expected so far? Or is the, are we in the place where we thought we might be? Or is this just a complete, are we off the map at this point? I mean, I, to, I, I have the benefit of having just listened. I decided to go back and listen to our Donald Duck episode that we did um, in the wake of the 2016 elections to see if we made any predictions about what was going to happen. And Malcolm, I'm sure you'll be delighted to know you got one thing very right. Um, oh my God! That, uh, what did I say? Well, I say delighted. You're probably delighted in terms of your your Nostradamus um, levels, but not in the policy change. You said the Iran nuclear deal was going to be done, um, and that wouldn't happen, and it would be scrapped. And you were very much right about that. Um, I actually speculated as well that the Affordable Care Act would be much harder to repeal than re- Republicans perhaps thought at the time, and that came true. The one predicts Paddy was very much trying to avoid predictions in that podcast. Having been chastened, <laughs> his only outstanding prediction was, of course, that Cory Booker was going to win easily in 2020, and we're still waiting to see if that <laughs> unfolds. Did was it? <laughs> no, you made oh it. It, it was it was jokingly. Um, All right. But I suppose on, on a serious note, um, I I think I think you have to. Like trying to be as objective as possible for this it is quite interesting just how unproductive the past two years of governing have been. Have, you just have, you had Republicans controlling every branch of government and, and, you know, as well, they controlled a hell of a lot of state and local government. But the fact that you really only have a tax cut to point to um, and a host of executive orders um, beyond that, um, I, mean, I, I can't think of him missing anything out just now, but at, at that point, you, you sort of, yeah, sorry, the Supreme Court just, justices as well, which was another part of the prediction we actually made back in that podcast. But um, I suppose the, the most interesting development to me has been just how much Donald Trump um, has captured the Republican Party. Um, I think back in 2016, that was very much up in the air. We even spoke on that pod- podcast about how Trump owed nothing to the Republican Party because it had fought him a lot in terms of getting the nomination. Whereas now you just see most anti-Trump Republicans sort of jump ship, didn't run for re-election, or a lot of them have been defeated um, as Trump took great glee in outlining in his press conference. So that, that's that been an interesting development for, for me. And also we, we, we definitely didn't foresee the Me Too movement coming, which has been perhaps one of the, the greatest social developments in the wake of Trump. Yeah. I suppose um, in terms of if we're thinking about the uh, failure of uh, 
the Republicans governance over the last two years. Um, I think there are kind of three stories there. One is, um, as you sort of hinted at, the, the effectiveness of what we can, I think, broadly call the resistance, um, its ability to mobilize against um, key Republican legislative initiatives and um, cause a great deal of... Uh, cause a great deal of pain for the Republican Party and also ensure that the Democratic caucuses in the House and the Senate have been remarkably united over the past two years. I mean, it is extremely striking that um, in, in the run-up to a 2000, run-up to the midterm elections, um, only one Democrat in a red state voted for Justice Brett Kavanaugh um, to, to confirm to the Supreme Court. Heidi Heidkamp, the uh, North Dakota Democrat, um, voted against him and it may have been a contributing factor in, in her defeat. Now, we, we can point that to um, we can point to that to be you know a, a consequence of the accusations against Justice Kavanaugh, um, but those were only kind of. Uh, those were driven to the top of the agenda by a, an, an effective movement, an effective kind of organizing activist movement against him um, that I think put a great deal of pressure on, on the Democratic Party. Two of the big things I think worth noting. One is that uh, the continued unpopularity of key parts of the Republican agenda. I mean, you can see that particularly in the Obamacare fight to the extent that um, by the end of the uh, midterm campaigns, Republicans were all but were basically promising to defend Obamacare. They were certainly promising to, to preserve protections for uh, people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and, uh, you know, even elements of the Republican agenda that I think most people assumed would at least be superficially popular, like the tax cut, haven't turned out to be as, uh, as big vote winners as, as they'd imagine, imagined. And of course, the third thing is that Donald Trump is just really, really bad at his job. Uh, I mean, we forget this sometimes. Um, Ezra Klein, uh, the, the journalist, had this great sort of metaphor in which he said that, um, that the problem with Donald Trump is that we tend to view him like a dog making pancakes, which is that he's so unlikely, he's, it's so implausible that he would be the president, that the sheer fact that it is happening um, kind of skews our, our understanding of him. And so instead of going, oh, but these pancakes are awful, you know, they're, they're all burnt and they're full of dog hair and eggshells, everyone goes, but the dog <laughs> is making pancakes, it's amazing, this is astonishing. Um, so it, 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 I think he gets an unusual amount of leeway, despite the fact that he, in almost every indicator, underperforms a kind of, quote, normal Republican president. Uh, and oh, before we move on to the next thing, we've been talking about the Supreme Court. I'm sure we all pass our best wishes and hopes for recovery onto Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had a fall the other day and broke a, broke a few ribs. Hope she uh, gets well soon and cracks on uh, without cracking more ribs. Because, uh, I mean, th 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 there's something to reflect upon. The departure of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, from the Supreme Court, there would be another gap. And that's another concern uh, for those opposed to the kind of the increasing conservatism of the Supreme Court, that we have, you know, an elderly justice. So the two most elderly justices are both liberals on the court. So, I mean, it's uh, you, you yeah. really do have a chance that the... That, that, that Donald Trump could shape the Supreme Court for, for generate, for not just one generation, but generations, because, you know, these are young conservatives that are going on the bench. They're not, um, elderly justices being promoted. So there is that. And also, even if you do get a Democrat elected in 2020, the Republicans look like they're gonna have a lock on the Senate for a while if this sort of rural urban divide that we'll maybe get into later in the podcast continues. 
Um, so, so at best the Democrat might be able to nominate a, a sort of moderate, but that's sort of looking too far ahead. But yeah, something to bear in mind. So let's turn to history because this is really what we're here for. Because uh, I'm not up to speed with all this contemporary malarkey. <laughs> Mid midterms in American politics. Okay, so midterms as a phenomenon of the American political system. Why have they mattered? And are there any historical, big historical trends that we can see coming out of midterm elections in the 20th and into the 21st century? Um, I mean, the reason they matter is, and kind of the reason we call them midterms is because they come midway through a, a president's term in general. Um, of course, if you're a member of the House, it's not a midterm, it's the end of your term, because House members have, have two-year terms in general. But uh, they are generally interpreted as an opportunity for uh, the American people, you know, broadly defined, to express their approval or discontent with the direction of the nation and the direction of a particular president. And the the most frequent trend that we see and have certainly seen in the last uh, 20, 30 plus years or so is that midterms generally uh, see a backlash to uh, the governing party. And, and given the nature of, of U.S. politics, by governing party, we usually mean the party that is occupying the White House at that moment. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's quite interesting, the fact they're called midterms. Um, you know, uh, Paddy and I were involved in organising a conference on, on the history of midterms that took place last week. And one of the papers we had was from uh, David Silkenat, who, who we recorded one of our very early podcasts on the Civil War with. And he looked at election, midterm elections that took place in the 19th century. And what he found was by doing a sort of Google search through, through, through the words that were used was that the word midterm was never used. It was just elections. Um, because back then, you know, Americans didn't just define their politics by who was president. So these elections were seen as just as important uh, as presidential election years. So I think in the 20th century, while, as Paddy outlines, they've actually been very significant elections, um, you know, they've often put a check on, check on the president or on very rare occasions shown how, how, how the affection that American people feel for, um, a certain president and his agenda. Um, you know, that is a relatively new development. Um, and people, people t- still, sorry, in terms of how people view a midterm elections, I say that this is the first one in a long time where it's almost been elevated to the status of a presidential election. And perhaps people are beginning to... We'll see if it holds. It might just be a Trump phenomenon. But perhaps Americans are beginning to wake up to the fact that midterm elections have just as many consequences, um, arguably, uh, as the presidential election years. Yeah, I mean, the very fact, as you say, Mark, the very fact that they call midterms is a function of the fact, or that they call midterms now, is a function of the fact that the presidency has, and the president has become so dominant in the American constitutional system, really since the New Deal. Um, it, it, the, the president is really the kind of prime mover in, in the American system in a way that, um, is not really clear if you just took, say, a plain text reading yeah. of the Constitution. And then the other thing I'd say as well that's been quite interesting about uh, midterms in the past 50 years, but increasingly in the last 20 years, is just how midterm elections are used to... I remember my supervisor advising me when I was doing my, my thesis and I was looking at the 1966 midterms and he was trying to remind me, look, midterm elections aren't national events, they're local events, you know, there's people voting on local issues. And that just isn't true anymore. You know, Tuesday night was essentially as nationalised as any presidential election. 
Um, if not more so, if you even look, if you look at the results. Um, so it, it's interesting how midterms are evolving now into these. It's whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's not whether you are better at fixing. Um, you know, if you if your local Republican might be really good on education, you don't care because they're Donald Trump's Republican. You know, so it, yeah. it's kind of interesting how that's evolving. Yeah. And I think one of the striking things, one of the striking facts that emerged from these midterms is the fact that I think it's 49 states now that are under unitary control, or state legislatures at least, are under unitary control. Uh, of one party or another. I think it's only the uh, it's only Minnesota that isn't now. So you're starting to see uh, a, a growing preponderance of straight ticket voting uh, as opposed to more instances of, of divided government, which had been the feature of, uh, you know, recent recent decades. So you talked earlier or you mentioned briefly about the kind of the rural urban divide in America. It's been you know, developing for a, a long, long time now and the kind of increasing concentration of popul- populations on the two seaboards. But, you know, there's the problem of the way in which the Constitution mandates representation, that a certain amount of political power is held by a, a smaller number of number of people. So how did that ma- how does that matter in midterms and how does it how does it matter now? Yeah, I mean, just to just to ram home this urban-rural divide um, on on Tuesday night, uh, the the Democrats beat a Republican in Staten Island, uh, which is like the only Republican part of 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 New York's New York City's five boroughs, and the by beating him, that meant that the Democrats now hold every single district that in America that's classed as purely urban. Um, and they only hold, there are a lot more rural, purely rural districts, but they only hold something like 19 of them and the Republicans hold 100 and something of, of the rest of them. So it, it is, I mean, it, it's stark how that matters. Now, what that doesn't really matter for is the House results. That doesn't really matter, like, the, you, you know, because um, Democrats can still get to majority through urban and suburban districts and, and the like. Where it has a sort of disproportionate effect is in a couple of ways in terms of the Senate. Obviously, this, these are statewide elections, um, and so you have a you have smaller rural states have a disproportionate influence. So, for example, Montana, t- small state that is probably a bad example because there's a Democrat elected there. But say North Dakota, where there's now two Republicans, small state, two electoral votes. California has something like fifty nine million people in it, um, and it's heavily urban, and that has two electoral votes. So that puts the party that is more attractive to urban voters at a disadvantage. And it also, therefore, puts um, when it, when we come to uh, Trump's re-election in twenty twenty, is obviously those the, how many electoral votes the state has contributes to the electoral college, and to whether um, as, as to who gets elected that way. And obviously, we know that Democrats have now won the popular vote twice in the last twenty odd years and still lost the presidency. So that's why, in an electoral sense, it really matters this rural urban split. So just to be just to be clear, that because each state of the union has two senators, regardless of mm-hmm. population size, we've now got to mm-hmm. the situation where, very roughly speaking, about thirty percent of the American population control seventy percent of senatorial representation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know the exact Some numbers, that, yeah. but the one the one thing I would say is there's a lot of outrage yeah. about this, especially amongst people on the left. And I, I don't know, I mean, uh, I think if you look back through American history, the, a lot of these things go in swings and roundabouts and sometimes the Electoral College will benefit one party more than the other. Sometimes 
You know, you just you just have these cyclical things that are baked into this odd electoral system. Um, so that this is why I'm entirely skeptical of people who say there'll have to be this great electoral college reform or this great shift. It's it's just not going to happen. Um, and there may come a day where it actually ends up benefiting him, those people who are complaining about it now, and they'll they'll probably not talk about it then. I think the the time it becomes a significant problem is if the uh, the kind of the partisanship uh, sharpens those contradictions to the point where it becomes intolerable. So you mentioned Mark a, a few moments ago that um, it, it was quite likely that even if a, a Democrat were to win in two thousand and twenty, that the Republicans would probably still hold the Senate. Um, in which case you might have a situation as Republicans had been promising during the 2016 campaign, and maybe that was just rhetoric, but promising uh, not to confirm any uh, nominees to the Supreme Court to ensure that that seat remained vacant. So if you have, say, a Republican Party that is moving in the direction of thinking that democratic, capital D, democratic governance is just illegitimate, then um, that takes you into a situation where um, the iniquities in the constitutional system uh, reach kind of crisis point. Uh, if it is just impossible for Democrats to govern under any circumstances, then that is not something that you can expect the Democratic Party or the Democratic coalition, which is larger now than the Republican True, although, to, although to I, I think that's more of a failing of the, like, you know, the, the Republican Party to adhere to the sort of constitutional norms rather than... You know, you know, the electoral... Yeah, no, but the Democratic Party can't mind control the Republican Party, but they can change the institutional configuration so that they don't have a, a disproportionate advantage. We've kind of been waiting for the fever to break in the Republican Party in every election cycle for since the Obama years, is it? And uh, it's just not happening. So moving on from on from that and moving even deeper into uh, geekier interests, uh, do you have... A favourite midterm election, and why? Harry, I'll let you take this one first, because I know you definitely have well, one. Okay, well, um, the, uh, I suppose uh, my favourite is the one I've written the most about in my forthcoming book with University Press of Kansas, which I'm, I'm going to plug at every single opportunity. Um, and it, it's also the one that in some ways is uh, is the most useful comparison with, with last night. Um, or is at least the biggest swing to the Democrats since uh, uh, biggest swing to the Democrats prior to last night, and that is the midterms of 1974, um, when uh, in the aftermath of uh, Watergate of, of Richard Nixon's resignation, uh, the Democrats made um, big gains in the uh, in the congressional elections. They won 49 seats in the House uh, and four in the Senate. Um, of course, it was very different because the Democrats went into that election with majorities in both chambers, which were swelled to veto-proof majorities as a result of that election. Um, th that election threw up a lot of um, grotesque uh, moments, and, and one of the most one of the most absurd was uh, what happened to Wilbur Mills, um, who uh, was the as a House member. He was considered one of the most powerful legislators in Washington in the mid-20th century as the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, he all but forced Lyndon Johnson to agree to a tax increase in 1967, um, which means he has the, the distinction uh, of, in US history of being one of the few people who ever made Lyndon Johnson do something he didn't want to do. Um, and, and he gets embroiled in this in this kind of a, a ridiculous scandal in early October 1974, a few weeks before the election, which um, 
which some ways seems to kind of um, put the cherry on top of the, of the whole kind of Watergate debacle. Um, uh, and it happens that a, a limousine gets pulled over in, in Washington, D.C. by the Capitol Police and they discover uh, Wilbur Mills, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, in the back, bleeding from the face and it, clearly inebriated. The car's other passenger, who's a young woman called Annabelle Battistella, who worked as an exotic dancer under the name Fanny Fox, the Argentine firecracker, had made an unsuccessful attempt to escape as the police approached, and she had to be fished out of the tidal basin. Um, So it's a big scandal. Mills still uh, won his uh, re-election in a landslide Uh, a few weeks later, got 60% of the vote. In Arkansas, um, Battistella, uh, as a result of this, adopted the name the Tidal Basin Bombshell and she increased her appearance fees. Um, but then it got weirder because a few weeks after the election, the end of November, Battistella is performing in a club in Massachusetts. Uh, and midway through the act, a clearly inebriated Mills appears, climbs onto the stage uh, to the astonishment of the crowd, um, which included by this point a number of journalists, uh, presumably doing research. Um after the act, Mills then gives a press conference in which he calls Battistella my little Argentine hillbilly and pledged to make her career in Hollywood. All this kind of uh, stramash leads to Mills losing his uh, his chairmanship of, of the Ways and Means Committee in January 1975 when the caucus reconvenes. Um, he ends up checking into rehab and stepping down from the House two years later. Um, but that is part of a, a of a broader kind of cull of chairmans in the, in, a, in the 94th Congress that I could also talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't uh, go, go any better than the Wilbur Mills story. But, um, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this and I can't figure out what is my most interesting midterm. But the one that's sort of in my mind just now, um, even though I've not personally researched it, is the nineteen seventy midterm actually the four year, the one before Paddy's and that's on the back of you done an excellent paper by uh, the University of Cork State of Thelen, um the when we were at for that was at that conference last week. And essentially I find it really interesting because basically Richard Nixon, this is his first midterm and he you know, America's about as divided as you can get, you know, this is the Vietnam War is you know, wreaking havoc. Nixon's expanded his bombing into Cambodia. The Kent State shootings have happened, which Nixon basically uses as a sort of good a moment to divide the nation further between what he calls bums and heroes. You know, sort of the the liberal students and, and the working class silent majority. And he sends his vice president Spiro Agnew out there as a sort of attack dog to ram home these culture wars and to really try to try to win the election by dividing Americans. And um, I I actually think Nixon's relatively successful. While the Democrats pick up some seats here or there um, in the House, um, and the, the Republicans pick up a couple in the Senate, Nixon's own party, he doesn't have the big backlash first midterm that a lot of presidents have. Like, he doesn't take a pasting or anything. Um, and I find that really interesting because I think, and I, I'm not saying Trump was aware of that, although I do think that and I'm not saying this flippantly, I, I do think Trump's political hero is Nixon, and I think there's a, there's a lot of things that he thinks are Nixonian. Um, but I think Trump basically did the exact same strategy, only with immigration as the main issue, which wasn't really an issue in 1970, but was far less successful, um, which I find quite interesting. Um, you know, they, they lost a lot more seats in the House this year. So, I mean, I, I, find, I find that one quite interesting just in terms of the whole divide and conquer strategy how it was maybe more successful in the 70s than it was in 
2018. So let's dig into 2018. We've now heard about some historical context. Let's dig into 2018. And for for those of our, our, our listeners who, who might not be as familiar with the, the vagaries of the American system, the fact that the Democrats won the House, how and why does that matter? Well, uh, it matters First of all, because it means that the uh, Republican legislative agenda, such as it is, has been stopped in its tracks. Um, it is now kind of functionally impossible for the Republicans to pass anything uh, that I think they would be particularly enthusiastic about through a Democratic controlled House. Um, there may be some possibility for um, uh, for some kind of cooperation between, say, the Trump White House, the Republican Senate and the Democratic House. You know, infrastructure week is, uh, is always <laughs> just around the corner. Um, but, um, it's, uh, I, I, I really don't think that, say, certainly the Democratic coalition is in compromising mood. Uh, and I don't think they'd be in, uh, much, um, very enthusiastic about any kind of grand bargains. Uh, the other big issue and the other, uh, uh, big thing that this means is that, um, Trump's free ride really is over. Um, the extent of the kind of corruption and the malfeasance we've seen, not just from him personally, uh, from the way he is, continues to be enmeshed in the, uh, in the Trump organization, um, in a much greater extent than any previous president has a kind of, you know, extensive international business interests, but also the kind of corruption that we've seen in the executive branch, um, you know, small things like, you know, why are uh, questions about um, uh, national origin being put on the census, for example? Um, those kind of things that Republican controlled committees have mostly ignored, uh, Democratic controlled committees are now going to take a much greater interest in, I would think. And you will likely see, um, uh, you know, increasing number of committees and subcommittees helmed by Democrats who would like to get a bit of uh, a bit of attention for themselves effectively kind of using subpoenas as press releases. Uh, so I, I think that the Trump administration can expect uh, a, a kind of Lilliputian strategy from, from a Democratic House uh, in which lots of different annoying committee chairs try yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with that that last point more. I mean, my, my dad sent me a text message asking me, so what does this all mean? And basically, and my response was, Trump is about to get investigated a lot, but not much else is going to change. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one, the one thing that has sort of changed is the... I mean, the Senate's got a far more rec- comfortable Republican majority in it now, so you might see. I mean, I mean, I don't know if they were hesitant in the first place with their narrow majority, but if they had any hesitation in putting forward um, whatever judges they wanted to put forward, now they, they will not have any hesitation. Um, there will be a lot of the Republicans who had any interest in at least even verbally checking Trump are gone. Um, thinking sort of of, of John McCain, Jeff Flake, Bob Corker. They're all gone and they're now, well, maybe in the case of John McCain, he might be replaced by a Democrat now, but the, that's still up in the air. But the others have been replaced by hard right partisan Republicans and who will have no, no check on Trump whatsoever. So you've, you've kind of got the House moving left and the Senate moving right. Yeah. And I think you have a useful barometer with uh, Mitt Romney coming in as senator from Utah, uh, because, of course, prior to jumping back into electoral politics, Romney had been positioning himself as kind of the voice of sensible republicanism and had been, um, at least in, in rhetorical terms, 
uh, among the most uh, condemnatory of uh, uh, of the president's Republican critics. I mean, let's not forget, of course, that it was uh, that it was Romney who made such a big deal of, of Trump's endorsement in 2012 and arguably helped to legitimize him as a force in, in Republican politics. But I think it will be interesting in terms of understanding what's happening to the Republican Party just to keep an eye on what Mitt Romney is doing. Um, the other thing to say, of course, about I think Mark is absolutely right about the the way that the Senate might um, embolden the Trump administration and the way that uh, you've really seen the president's critics in the Senate being kind of routed. Um, the other issue is that is, I think, going to um, make the president more determined to impose himself on the executive branch. We've already seen his his, I mean, his first big response to the midterms, of course, was to fire Jeff Sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he did that because he knew he could get any successor through the Senate fairly easily. So can we turn for a moment? I was going to bring that up, the the firing of, of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. So what are the midterms and the, the fallout from these midterms? What does it mean for the, the Mueller investigation, the ongoing investigation into into Trump and collusion and the Russian interference and there's a dog yes, barking uh, in the Lindman background. Is very worried about the <laughs> about what's going to happen to the Mueller investigation. <laughs> Can we leave that in? Um, I mean, the, the striking thing, of course, about the new Attorney General or the new Acting Attorney General, I should say, Matt Whitaker. I mean, first of all, it's unusual that he is the Acting Attorney General. Under other circumstances, you would expect the Deputy Rod Rosenstein to take over. That's kind of what deputies are for. Um, but uh, clearly that hasn't happened in this case. And there's been a great deal of speculation that the reason for that is because Whitaker had said um, publicly that the way to uh, neuter the uh, the um, Mueller investigation was uh, not to kind of fire him, but just to defund him and sort of slowly throttle the investigation and, uh, and deprive it of, of capabilities. And, and that would be a way of, of kind of defanging Mueller without any messy confrontation. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is to note that, you know, if if they did manage to close down the special counsel, it's likely that the Democratic House would be able to open some sort of investigation that with the, with not maybe not the entire powers that that investigation has, but a certain amount of them. Um, so I mean that that part sort of puts a certain check on it. But aside from that, I I really wouldn't like to speculate. All I can um, the main thing I can say is that I wish I was a lawyer in America right now because it seems to me that American government now American politics exists as a career path for lawyers. Is what I can see just because there's there seems to be a lot of chat like challenges to almost everything and it's just back and forth. So. We'll see. I don't want to make too many predictions about where the, the special counsel um, will go. And what do the midterms mean for Mitch McConnell? Well, he cemented his power base. Um, I mean, Mitch McConnell, whatever else you may think of him, is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily effective uh, political operator. I, I imagine... Whether, whether he's actually good at accomplishing much is interesting. I actually think there's quite a comparison to be drawn with um, Lyndon Johnson's Senate majority time uh, when Johnson was known for being brilliantly at getting, brilliantly getting votes through and, you know, getting the caucus to go along with him when he needed. But when people look back, they actually go, well, you didn't actually do much, um, but you were good at the politics. Um, so I think Mitch McConnell is sort of in that regard, but he's... He certainly strengthened his uh, his grip over things. 
Yeah. I am often bemused as, as to what precisely Mitch McConnell is in politics to achieve beyond um, the amassing of power. I mean, if you look at someone like Paul Ryan, right, who's the comparable figure in the House, I have a fairly clear sense about what he wants to do, right, about it, um, regardless of, of personal opinions on it. I, I know what his vision of, of an ideal America, if you know, looks like in broad terms. Um, I'm less clear on what Mitch McConnell wants, on where he would like to end up, if you know what I mean. I mean, he started out in the 1980s as a pretty moderate Republican, and he has seemed to move progressively rightward as the decades have gone on, but not so far that he, he would be considered, say, a, a member of the Tea Party or something. But, um, yes, I, I'm, I'm, I think just to echo and reinforce Mark's points, uh, about having secured his own power base now, I, I think he is pretty unchallenged. One thing I, say that <laughs> I actually Senate. think what's more interesting is who's going to lead the Democrats in the House. Um, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, is it's hard to... So much, quite a few Democrats that were elected did promise that they would not vote for Nancy Pelosi. And here's someone who is opposite of, of Mitch McConnell is extraordinarily effective at getting stuff done. Um, if you look at Obama's first two years. But Maybe in terms of the politics, well, I mean, I don't know how much of it is her fault, but she's she's managed to become a, a, a wonderful Republican attack ad over the years. So there is there's peril in elevating her to be the face of the Democratic Party over the next two years, whether you think that's fair or not. I think there's, I mean, it certainly seems to be the case that Donald Trump is very enthusiastic about uh, getting to have Nancy Pelosi as his foil. I mean, he he just really loves attacking women uh let's be honest um in some ways i, I think the uh i i suspect that pelosi will be re-elected as speaker or elected as speaker i should say well no re-elected uh as speaker um come january if, if only because it doesn't seem realistic to me who her challenger is i mean i I can quite see the problems that a great many Democrats have with her, but um, all of her major challenges, people like you know, Tim Ryan from Ohio, uh, are to Pelosi's right. And the Democratic caucus in the House has moved in Pelosi's direction since uh, you know 2006. So I think the idea of getting rid of Pelosi and putting in a um, putting in someone who is to her right is, I think. Um, is I think implausible. What may be more likely is that Pelosi uh, becomes a kind of interim leader while some uh, new exciting person is kind of groomed for uh, for the succession. I, in some ways, what it really reminds me of, I mean, just to come back to a different set of midterms, uh, is uh, the early 1980s uh, and the ructions around um, the Democratic Speaker of the House, Thomas Tip O'Neill, um, who, and you have a very similar dynamic in the early 1980s. You have a kind of Republican White House and Ronald Reagan, Republican controlled Senate and Democratic House, as we're about to have now. Um, and of course, O'Neill was thought to be, uh, was in a, a comparable situation to Pelosi and he was, um, thought to be a liability for many of the Democrats. Um, uh, he'd been used in Republican attack ads in the 1980s. The Republicans had actually hired an O'Neill lookalike actor. Uh, to kind of uh, appear in, uh, uh, as their foil. He'd, uh, he was seen to be kind of ineffective and less than energetic in resisting the Reagan revolution. He'd been involved in, in scandals in, uh, in the 1970s or tangentially involved in scandals that had left him rather tainted. Famously, one Republican congressman, John Lebertilia, uh, I think I pronounced that correctly, uh, from New York, uh, called uh, O'Neill big, fat and out of control, just like the federal government. 
Um, so the Republicans used him and much the same way they do with Pelosi now as a kind of avatar of an unpopular version of the Democratic Party. Um, but O'Neill actually sort of held did, on. Did he not? Did he not like lose weight? Is that all part of his big strategy to be more appealing? Or is <laughs> he lost a lot of weight? I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've read not that somewhere sure about that. that. Yeah. Uh, I think it could be. Yeah, that would uh, that would certainly make sense. Um, but he was. Uh, yeah, and, and one of the reasons he holds on is is that the Democrats did very well in the 1982 midterms uh, and increased their uh, increased their majorities in the House. Um, so yeah, just to come back to it, I think the problem you have with Pelosi is is sort of who who is the obvious successor, uh, and it doesn't seem to me there is anybody uh, waiting in the wings. So, one, one other thing I just wanted to mention that's interesting about the Democrats in the House is just this. That a lot of the people that have been elected, um, the new members come from suburban districts. They don't come from far progressive districts on the, on the Pacific or, or East Coasts, Atlantic Coast. Um, and they got elected saying they were problem solvers who would work with everyone. So it's going to be really interesting to me as to whether the Democratic Party does make, offer all of branches to, to, to Donald Trump or whether they, they go for the sort of what, what you imagine that the, the, the people that are most progressive just want to, you know, want a chunk of Donald Trump like bitten out of them. Like, so it'll be, it'll be quite interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Yeah, as one commentator said on Twitter, um, of the 37 districts from that Democrats have flipped from the Republicans uh, or are currently leading in, about 70% of them contain a whole foods. Right, let's crack on. Start to get that in. Let's crack on from the, <laughs> from the congr- congressional uh, part of this. Before we get into some brief and probably rather specious crystal ball gazing, what were the gubernatorial elections? So how have they, how have they gone? And, and do, do, do gubernatorial elections matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that, I mean, they're a mixed bag. I think the, the Democrats really had a lot of hopes pinned on the sort of star candidates of Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum, who, as we record like now, look like they probably won't win, even though none of them are Neither resolved. of those are resolved, um, yeah, that's so. I mean, Gillum, for example, was polling quite far ahead and hasn't, and, and so I think that was the point. The one that most interested me was Ohio, um, which, you know, Ohio is the, the traditional bellwether state, um, and aside from the fact that the, the, set, the Democratic Senate candidate there, Sheriff Brown, who has a sort of unique brand of his own, managed to win. Uh, Democrats did really badly in Ohio, um, and that's that's a state. While it's more important for a Republican to win it, it's the famous thing about Republicans never win the White House without Ohio. It is also very important for a Democrat. You know, you often got Obama's Obama's wins, especially in two thousand twelve, were confirmed when they knew he'd won Ohio, and it looks like Ohio is trending away from the Democrats. Um, I'm starting to resemble Indiana more than Pennsylvania, for example, and. That I mean, it might just be a temporary shift, but that 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 was the most interesting result to me. But elsewhere, they did really well, which I don't know if Paddy wants to talk I, about. Yeah. Well, I think the I mean, I think we can inc- we should be increasingly moving away from the idea of Ohio as a kind of bellwether or centrist state uh, and start thinking of it as more of a uh, a lean Republican state or even a likely Republican state. Sherrod Brown is, I, I think, something of uh, an anomaly in Ohio politics right now, not unlike, say, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. Um, I think the striking thing for me um, at this kind of sub uh, congressional and sub congressional gubernatorial elections is how well the Democrats did in um, the so-called blue wall states, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. 
Um, because, of course, uh, Donald Trump's road to the presidency runs through those states. Um, it's very difficult to see how he assembles a coalition without those. And the midterm elections uh, earlier this week seemed to suggest that uh, the Democratic Party was still reasonably robust in, in those states. Um, so if that kind of holds for 2020, who knows? Um but um, I, I think one of the, the uh, in broader terms, one of the most striking things is that now the majority of uh, majority of Americans, I think I'm correct in saying, live under democratic governors. Um, and, and that, of course, is uh, is significant, is partly a result of um, the fact that Democrats govern more populous states than Republicans. Um, I think it is still the case that around 18 states have democratic governors and and um 30 something have republican uh, i could wildly out with those figures but it's definitely a, a significant republican it's a bit more even now it could be a, i could be thinking of state legislatures but um it is certainly the case that uh, an increase in democratic governors even if say democrats don't control the state legislatures in, in all all those states is going to have a big impact uh after the 2020 census when um congressional districts start to be withdrawn start to be re- redrawn um because even if say a republican controlled legislature can draw a uh, a gerrymandered or a particularly uh, advantageous set of, of congressional districts uh, a democratic governor could veto those um so i think it will these are often unconsidered elections but it will be significant right so that's us covered off 2018 where do we go from here you both have a maximum, I'm putting time limits on this, you both have a maximum of two minutes. What do these results mean for the rest of Trump's presidential term? And what do they mean, what do you think they mean for the 2020 presidential elections? Paddy. Um, I think that what this likely means is that the remainder of Trump's term is going to be increasingly confrontational. Um, I think it means that with... I love how uh, increasingly kind of avenues, confrontational. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think with it, with the avenues to any kind of meaningful legislative uh, change uh, blocked to Trump and the Republicans, not that he's particularly interested in that, but I think his, his pitch to Americans will become increasingly based on his own brand of identity politics, um, which is to say... Uh, uh, banging on about immigration, about crime, about, uh, you know, the need to secure the borders. Um, and I think he will just continue to promise in increasingly blood-curdling terms uh, that the Democrats will will threaten that. Yeah, I mean, to, to sort of paraphrase or to, to, to say something that I don't know whether Howard McMillan actually ever said, you know, events, dear boy, events. Um, uh, I there's so many variables here that you don't really, you know, prognostication is hard. The one big thing that is, you know, that everybody keeps mentioning, but we don't know if it's going to happen. And, you know, you sort of hope it doesn't as a, as if there's going to be an economic recession at some point during the, the Trump's presidency. And that, that could come, that could bring a lot of things tumbling down. But even then I've got a sort of skepticism. I could sort of see Trump turning around and just blaming that on the Democrats, um, and, and riling, riling up his base even more. But but yeah, I mean, I I just don't know how long America can can s- sustain this brand of politics um, that Trump has brought. You know, has has turned up to eleven. You know, they were already a, a polarized country politically. But um, two thousand. What what really interested me about the results um, this week was the fact that it was almost just 
cementing what happened in 2016. Um, it was very much if you voted, for, it very much just continued to split the party between the sort of rural and urban split that we talked about later. And there's just so much anger and so much misinformation on both sides that it's just it's hard to see where you go from there. I don't think you go to a successful presidency, though. That's that's one thing. No, I think it is entirely plausible that uh, a Democratic candidate could win in 2020. And, and I will say as a footnote that I, I think Donald Trump should be considered a, a yeah, slight favourite for re-election, if only because incumbent presidents tend to get re-elected. But I think a Democrat could win in 2020, basically on the message of um, you will be able to go days without thinking about <laughs> what I'm doing. Uh, you will just be able to ignore me because I will be getting on with the job. <laughs> Um, it'd be a very uh, attractive pitch for like Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. You know, I'm I'm, comp- I'm very competent and I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, thank you both for your insights into these recent midterm elections in the United States. I look forward to hearing from you again uh, after the 2020 presidential election. Uh, caveat: if we're all still alive. I think you used that. I think you used that caveat into the two Donalds. <laughs> I, that's that's my standard caveat for everything to do with Look, talking about American politics at the moment. If we're still alive. Looking. Well, th- thank you very much for joining <laughs> us again, Paddy, and thank you, Mark. Uh, this is a, this is a podcast where I've had to do very little work, which is great. Just asking questions because this is not my area of expertise. So, thank you both for all your your yeah, insights. You. Look out for a return of our pod- the normal podcast at the end of this month, uh, where we're going to be delving into the the topic of immigration. Um, in American history, which I think is very prescient given, you know, the looming caravan that everyone seems to have forgotten about that's about to attack the United States. Yeah, I think I've heard more about my parents' caravan holiday over the last few days than I have about this caravan that is... On on that note about Paddy's parents' caravan, (laughs) thank you and goodbye until next time. Here's a new song I want to spring on y'all tonight. Take it home where you spread it around. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. And the biggest gun we got is called the ballot box. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Vote them out. Vote them out. And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. Bring some new ones in, and they will start the show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. credit card bill.